Do you like to be the first name of your sex tape? Well, if you like to be the first to listen to podcasts, you might want to check out our Patreon because now we're offering a brand new membership tier called Name of Your Sex Tape. I couldn't help it, guys. I'm sorry. For five pounds a month, you'll get an ad-free version of our weekly episode on a Tuesday, a full day earlier than its usual release. So you can be the very first to talk about how funny our guest was, how quickly you cracked the case, or how badly I answered a question. Plus, you'll get all the benefits of our regular tier, including our live Zoom records, a special shout out on the podcast, and if you really like to hear us talk, we've got an entire back catalog of extra content. Check it out on patreon.com forward slash drunk women solving crime. Name of your sex tape. Name of your sex tape. Name of your sex tape. Fancy coming along to see Drunk Women Solving Crime live? Ooh, yes please. Why not join us for our monthly London residency at the marvellous Museum of Comedy? We've got monthly shows through to June. Plus, every show is a double header, so you get to see us record not one, but two episodes with two fantastic guests. You can find tickets on our website, drunkwomensolvingcrime.com. Shows are selling out fast, so be quick. Noise. Noise. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Drunk Women Solving Crime. My name's Katie Wilkins and I'm an author and comedian. I'm joined by screenwriter Hannah George. Hello. And writer-comedian Taylor Glenn. Hello. This is where Brandy meets bludgeoning, Mimosa meets misdemeanour, and Port meets prostitution. It's a true crime podcast with a twist. Of Lime. Coming up on Drunk Women Solving Crime. I became perimenopausal and forgot I was doing Mastermind and double booked myself. (laughs) It's just some more adversity for us to triumph over. Was it me in 1999? (laughs) (laughs) It's the sort of silly mistake I would make. (laughs) I thought I'd lean into it tonight. (laughs) Now it's time for Drunk Women Solving Crime. Welcome to another episode of Drunk Women Solving Crime. We're recording this at the time that is basically the anniversary of the original lockdown. So as you can imagine... Yeah, I don't know how you guys are celebrating, but I'm staying home. (laughs) But we are still making this terrific podcast and we are joined by an amazing guest this week. Please welcome the fantastic presenter, Kate Thornton. Kate, how are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm really good. It's lovely to see you all. 
You too. Do you? It's been a long time in the making, haven't we? We've booked you about 18 times. There's been earthquakes and volcanoes, like something has been trying to keep us, but this is, it's meant to be now. It's almost a year to the day that we were supposed to do a live show together. I was going to be your guest. That's right. And then another couple of lockdowns knocked us out. And then I became perimenopausal and forgot I was doing mastermind and double booked myself. And here we are. That's my favourite thing that you forgot you were doing. Specialist (laughs) subject, not remembering things. Because Mastermind had moved so many times because of COVID as well. In the end, I think I just got into a huff with myself, not outwardly (laughs) to the wider world, of just going, well, fuck it, I'm not writing anything in my diary because nothing ever stays there anyway. And then then you guys were like, really looking forward to the record next Friday at eight. And I'm like, I'm in Belfast. (laughs) But I'm here. And you've been on on my podcast. So I feel like we know each other. Yes. Yes, White Wine Creston time. It's brilliant. Yeah, and it's awesome. And I feel like we really broke the ice with that podcast of all those awesome questions. (laughs) I still love the fact that Hannah is officially Britain's funniest woman, according to the Sun newspaper. See, I remember stuff. I don't remember things like when I'm available but I remember stuff <laughs> like that I remember outright lies no not true <laughs> for anyone listening that is because I did oh god many moons ago it was the higher education equivalent of running away with the circus and I did a degree in comedy writing and performance and because I was the only woman on the course of course I was I was the only one to sort of graduate with that degree hence the son doing a funniest woman yeah. in Britain thing officially because I had a degree and I've been proving yeah. them wrong ever since <laughs> no no it's great take it like luckily now loads more women are in comedy <laughs> but oh, Hannah paved the way don't even get me started yeah I was working with um, a really fascinating bunch of women today who work in finance and banking yeah I was learning about how Covid's really pushed that gender pay gap back oh, really? um so that it's yeah, yeah. So all that progress we made we've got a long way to, but anyway we'll do it because you know what we get shit done exactly yes we'll get back good to reframe exactly. yes it's just some more adversity for us to triumph over so i have got to ask you the question kate have you ever been the victim of a crime yes i have it's almost sort of um an a la carte menu for you to pick from. Um, <laughs> but I think I'm, uh, the one I'm going to serve up today is I hope uh, an experience that is incomparable to any other guest thus far. Oh, boy. Okay. I can't remember what year it was, but I was definitely hosting The X Factor, right? Um, and that kind of sits around this because a show like that attracts a lot of attention from all kinds of people. It's a show that's mm, watched sure. by sort of Everyone and anyone, really. Millions of people. Uh So at the time, I had a partner, a boyfriend, and he lived in Essex and I lived in South London, but we were very much together. And one day I come downstairs and somebody sent a letter to his house for me. So I'd stayed over at his. I don't live there. And there's a letter, quite an official looking letter. And I open Hmm. it up and it's from a solicitor who is writing to advise me that he's acting on behalf of his client, whose name I won't give you, because the client would like to have access and custody of the child, he says, we have had together called Ethan. Oh, wow. Holy shit. I go, wrong Kate Thornton, surely. I mean, not being funny. At this point, I've been on screen for a good 10 years now. So if I had been pregnant, it 
would have been quite easy to find some sort of note. Someone would have known if not you. Yeah, the internet was a thing. I mean, I'm old, but not that old. You could have easily, it was easily discoverable. So I look at this, this note and I think, wow. And then I go, oh, wow, this solicitor's like a chartered surveyor. Like he deals with like, you know, fence boundaries and stuff like that normally. Odd, but obviously the guy's got it all wrong. How on earth did he get this address for me? That's weird. Yeah. And I yeah. phone him yeah. to say... Hi, got a letter from you, bit confused, clearly not me, you've got the wrong one, but out of interest, how on earth did you get this address for me? And the guy goes, I know exactly who you are. Kate Thorne, yeah, yeah, that's me. I said, but listen, I don't have a child called Ethan. And he went, Kate, and you could see him quite liking this moment. Are you Kate Thornton from The X Factor? I was like, yes, that's what I'm saying. Like, clearly this is, is not me. He's like, it is. Anyway, what transpires is that this guy worked in a coastal kind of seaside town. He was kind of, you know, small town solicitor. Like I said, mainly dealt with, I don't know, boundaries and things like that. Yeah. Guys walked down the street and gone, you know her off the X Factor. (laughs) She is the mother of my son, Ethan. And he lays out in graphic detail in this letter about the night our son was born. How I conducted myself during childbirth. Subsequent conversations he'd had with my father. And this guy had clearly believed oh. him and sent this letter. And I said, like, you know, what I've just said to you now, it's like, Google me. I, th- I mean, seriously, somebody would have noticed if I had a baby. Yeah. This is a madness. <laughs> and then I went, and how did you get this address for me? And he said, the private detective. And I went, <gasps> what? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Convinced by this guy who'd walked in off the street, this solicitor with no access to the internet, clearly, or any kind of... <laughs> fact-finding skills, he said, what we'll do is we'll put a PI on her. So this guy that is convinced that we have a child together called Ethan now has my home address, my boyfriend's address. Oh, my God. Anything that a private investigator could find out about you is his, right? So I go, what? (laughs) You're insane. This is insane. I'm calling the police. What's your duty of care? You should be struck off from the bar. I'm gonna, you know, I'm, I'm livid. You're telling me that yeah. a man is so clearly unwell as to think that we've had a child together, and he walks into your office, yeah. you, a man of the bar, and you go, "Yeah, that sounds right. I'm not gonna bother checking any of this out. I'm just gonna hire a private investigator." Yeah, yeah, he enables him, right? So I go to the, my local police station and I say, look, this is the letter. This is all I've got. I've mm. given, I've, you know, I want this. I want this solicitor spoken to. And clearly this man's not well, but am I safe? Like, you know, yeah. I live on my own. <laughs> I said, I need to know what this guy looks like. He might be outside my house. I, you know, I, I, he might be waiting, I don't know, at the train station. I'd already had a couple of incidents with people that were unwell that had been, mm. you know, dealt with by the police before. So, you I... know, they were, they were familiar with me down at the, at the police station. And and I said, you know, like, what do we do? And he said, I, we can't give you any information on this guy because that would be an invasion of his privacy. Oh, no. <laughs> What's the actual fuck? That is the law working so, for you. That man oh is clearly not God. very well. I can find huge forgiveness 
towards him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It should never have got to where it did. The solicitor, I think, is entirely culpable. Yes. yes. And the law is an ass because I then had to install like some bloody state of the art matrix style security system that would go oh, off in the middle God. of the night if a cat walked past my front door and the police would be alerted <laughs> and I'd panic buttons and it was actually very frightening because as much yeah. clearly this person's not well so to what extent are they unwell and how far are they willing to go yeah. because they this guy was you know i think the lawyer the solicitor rather was so embarrassed when he realized upon reassurance from the police ah. didn't believe me by the way which thought was oh right i mean he literally didn't believe you when you explained thought i was lying were. i was like look on the internet look on the internet <laughs> you know you're like I'm pacing around my boyfriend's at the time's kitchen going, no, 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 you're not listening to me. He went, I know you are. I said, have you ever seen me pregnant? He was like, I watched the show. I went, and have you seen me? No, would you ever? Because I've never given birth. Wow. You know, wow. there was nowhere I could protect myself from this guy. To this day, I don't know what he looks like or if even the name that he's given is his real name. And yet Shit. he was able to kind of trawl around in my life and extract as much personal information as he saw fit. And I wasn't able to kind of then prosecute against that. What he did was apparently perfectly within the law. Oh, so there we go, it's girls. It's astonishing. And I guess it shouldn't be because now we know, like, how awful everything is. Fucking hell. I know. And the police, you know, were lovely. And they're saying, we wish we could help you. But we can't. I want to understand this solicitor because you say he's really embarrassed. But this, when you describe what kind of law he was practicing, I almost get the sense of like, finally, and a juicy case that I wish I could be doing. And it's like he just put his blinders on and like forgot like this person doesn't seem very stable, like just went for it. Like this is my moment to do something exciting. Also, just the fact that this guy did absolutely no homework. Yeah. Again, it's just another facet of being a woman. It's like, as soon as a woman is successful and in the public eye, they're like, well, she asked for it. No, 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 no. Yeah. Nobody asks for this and you've no idea. It just infuriates me. It's like that great line in The Simpsons. It's like, if they didn't want all this intrusion, they shouldn't have tried to express themselves creatively. I know, exactly. (laughs) Isn't it crazy that all the proof he needed was to walk into a room and say, this is what's um, happened. A man's you word. had the proof of having not had a child and you weren't believed. This is the thing that's crazy, isn't it? Is it's kind of like, yeah, like you know, people just don't believe women. Yeah. And he gave the date of birth as approximately July 1999. Approximately. I started working on television the year before that. My first television show was in 1997. So I'd been two years on screen. That you even have to explain that. I know, I shouldn't have to explain that. (laughs) Like, but that not that just the way? Like, we're constantly justifying ourselves and we're constantly defending ourselves. It is so ridiculous that this happened. Unbelievable. We always ask everyone on this podcast, what would you say if you had the perp now? But it almost feels like the lawyer is almost Mm -hmm. the best. What would you say to any of them? What were you thinking? How is that okay? Mm, Yeah. As much as I cued this up to you as you're never going to have heard a story like this, actually you will (sighs) to some varying degree because every woman has these stories. I think that the the law needs to be changed. The whole system. (laughs) There needs to be better safeguarding. There needs to be much more applicable laws that you can actually sort people out with. Yeah, the police are only as good as the laws. I really have to stress here that every officer that dealt with me 
could not have done more, been more, or cared more. Mm -hmm. And they followed up and they kept in touch. So they were incredible. But as you say, there's only so far they can go because they have to work within the law. It's sort of nice to hear a nice police story. I'm trying to reframe this that it's not terrible. You guys, you you run a brilliant comedy podcast and and I I don't, this this isn't funny. It's truly not funny. No! But it's also important. So ridiculous. It's really important. Yeah. And this podcast is the perfect place to talk about it. Now it's time for Drunk Women Solving Crime. Now we are going to talk about some true crime. So... On May 16th... Hold on, I've got to write this down. I, I have no memory, remember? <laughs> yes, I know, we have another, we have another. Loads of our recent guests have been very serious, elite members of the force. Mm. Can, I, can I just tell you that every night in lockdown, when we started lockdown going, right, my, it's just my son and I, we're going to sit at the table and have dinner like civilised people. Lockdown three, trains yeah. on our laps. And we watch every night. <laughs> that didn't last long. Every night, our kind of lockdown tradition is we watch an episode of Law and Order SVU. Yes. Victims S- Unit. Oh, my God. And oh. I'm obsessed. And... Literally, we've oh just gosh. watched an episode now. And a policewoman shot a 14-year-old boy and he she shot he shot her back and he went, it's all right, mum, it's only in the leg. She'd get over that, it's fine. Like, he's become, <laughs> like, he's become so knowledgeable oh, wow. about all this awful stuff. And he's like, oh, you know. Man. And I went, God, that's murder. He went, no, I reckon he could get down to manslaughter. <laughs> Oh, wow. He's already more qualified than the lawyer that you had to deal with with that letter. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. So on May 16th, a person is arrested for possession of narcotics in their New York apartment. So I have two questions. What year do you think this might be just off the bat? And also what type of narcotics do you think it would have been? Was it me in 1999? <laughs> <laughs> no. I don't think you can technically class them as narcotics. That's a strong word. <laughs> narcotics is drugs, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Heavy drugs. Like we here we have the drug squad, but then uh-huh. they have narcs. No. Oh, yeah, narcs. Yeah, they have Bureau of Narcotics, which we will get to. Is this a famous um, person that we're trying to come up with? Is that the question? All right. It is a famous person. Okay. You have to guess the year and then you have to guess what drugs. I'm gonna go 1919 and it's a singer. Okay, singer is correct. Okay. I watched it the other night on BBC Two. Is it Billy Holiday? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Did you watch the People versus Billy Holiday? Sorry, the United oh, States well of America done. versus Billy Holiday. Have you guys all seen it too? No. Yeah. So this film has just come out this year, and it's awesome, and it's oh, all wow. about this. Oh, so Kate, you this... shouldn't have said you'd seen it because we'd all be like, oh, she knows everything. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just choked on my wine. <laughs> I take that as a compliment. I'm so sad. It's really, and I was like. Oh, showbiz. Oh, God, this is really upsetting, actually. The film is about this big trial, and it was called The United States versus Billie Holiday. Okay. And it's this whole thing which we will get to. So the bit that I'm talking about now, so she, the first arrest for heroin was in 1947. It was made by agents from the Bureau of Narcotics and I need to tell you about them in a minute. But I just give a tiny bit of background about Billie Holiday. I mean, I'm pretty sure everyone knows who she is. So she's this amazing jazz musician, famous singer. Um, she was oh, born it's a in woman. 19... Oh, Billie Holiday, yeah. Oh. Kidding, Katie. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really pleased you said that because I was going to go, oh, I'm glad Taylor didn't realise either. But um, okay, so Taylor was joking. And oh, you're such a little baby. And there's a, there's a joke in Clueless 
where um, she gets in that guy's car. And oh, goes, yes. like Billy Holiday. And she goes, yes, I love I him. I love him. I forgot Do you know about what? That's, that. That's probably why I think Billy Holiday's a man. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've watched Clueless more than I've listened to good music. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Billy Holiday was born Eleonora Fagan in 1915 to teenage parents. Her dad left to be a jazz musician. She's raised by her mum, partly by other family members. Her mum, like, has, like, they're scrabbling for childcare. They're scrabbling for jobs. It's Katie, chaotic. sorry, she's where was raised, she born? Uh, well, she was raised partly in Philadelphia and partly in Baltimore. Okay. Um, I'm actually not sure if she was born in Philadelphia or if... Cause she no, that's cool. I just wondered if she was, like, northeast, south, west. So, yeah, cool. She's a northeast scout. I think scout. she spent quite a lot. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I don't want to spend... Loads of time on her childhood, but it was a bit chaotic. She really wants to live with her mum. Her mum eventually opens this restaurant called the East Side Grill and they work long hours mm. there together. So she leaves school at 11 and then she gets forced into prostitution. Age really? 14. Oh my yeah. God. Also, I think just before the age of 14. Wow. Actually. And then there is like horrific violence from pimps. She has a lot of very traumatic and abusive experiences. And then as a young teenager, she starts singing in nightclubs in Harlem and she renames herself and she decides to choose the name Billy from the actress Billy Dove, who she really admired. And she chose Holiday as a version of her dad's surname, Halliday. Oh, okay. um, That's all going really well. Like her reputation grows. She reconnects with her dad, who is also in a jazz band. She makes her recording debut in 1933, aged 18. She goes on to make more recordings. She tours with various bands and she chooses to portray her developing persona as a woman unlucky in love. But the touring Mm. is quite tough. And in this one band, I think the one with Artie Shaw, they're like touring the, the segregated South. She gets a lot of racial abuse and there's this one time where like this venue say she can't sit with the rest of the band she's the first black woman to be touring with this particular white band and then she says in her autobiography that Artie Shaw stuck up for her and said she had to sit with the rest of the band but he's being put under all this pressure to hire a white singer it's like all of this horrible stuff and then there's this one she quits this band because of this final straw that happens in November 1938 she was asked in a hotel she was asked to use a service elevator instead of the passenger elevator because white patrons of the hotels had complained. And when she spoke about the incident weeks later, she said, I was never allowed to visit the bar or the dining room like the other members of the band did. I was made to leave and enter through the kitchen. So it's like fucking atrocious, Mm. all of these things. So she quits this band, but she's seen in clubs and she gets like, she's very successful. So by 1947, she is at her commercial peak. Like she's made $250,000 in the last three previous years. Uh, She's ranked second on the the downbeat poll for 1946 and 1947. She's beloved. She's celebrated. Everybody loves her. And then as we know, on May 16th, 1947, she's arrested for possession of narcotics in her New York apartment. So my next question is... I didn't know a thing about her. I'm just going to say that. I knew even less. Well, (laughs) No, I'm joking. I am joking. I did know. I always (laughs) knew Billie Holiday was a woman, but... um... I'm a brag, but I knew (laughs) that. Were you joking? You didn't think it was men. Was that real? No, I was kind of joking, but it's one of those... It's kind of one of those ones where I I could... It's the sort of silly mistake I would make, so um, (laughs) I thought I'd lean into it tonight. The best depiction I've ever seen of her was Diana Ross playing her in a a film years and years ago called Lady Sings the Blues. 
I know and, what you're talking about. And I think, you know, she had the, like you said, you know, forced into prostitution, sexually assaulted as a child, raised by... Anyway, just, she, she, there was no care of duty whatsoever around this phenomenally talented uh, but terribly troubled young woman. And I think drugs were used uh, as a way to just keep her malleable. And then ultimately, the United States versus Billie Holiday sees her kind of as the poster girl being held up in all of that. This is it. So this this is my question. Does it feel in any way like a coincidence that Billie Holiday is at the height of her commercial peak when there are suddenly these drug charges being brought against her? No, it's no clue. It's a loaded question, Katie, so I'm refusing to answer it. It was a bit of a loaded it. question. I'm sorry. Yeah, it is no clue. Yeah, it's a coincidence. So... Everything is, Katie. <laughs> oh, sorry, it's 19 what? Yeah. It's 47 now? 1947. Two years. Post-war. Uh, yeah. You've got to remember the climate. Everyone's on their knees, exhausted, certainly here mm-hmm. in the UK, but even in the States, you know. And this is a woman that comes through and she was breaking new ground. And she was feisty mm. when she wanted to be. She had a song that people thought were about drugs called Strange Fruit. And she was she was stopped from we- singing it. It was considered controversial. Well, that is going to come up a lot. Um, I'll just tell you a tiny bit more about the baddies. The... Main villain of this story is Harry Anslinger, and he is the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Uh, you guys need to know two things about him. He is racist, and he gets described by various sources as so racist that even people of the 1930s and 40s thought that he was too racist. So people that are pro-segregation think that he's... You don't want to wear that T-shirt. Like, that's a lot. That's a lot. It's, yeah. And the second thing you need to know about him is that he has just been hugely burned by a very ineffectual fight against alcohol during the prohibition. And he is a laughing stock. Oh, God. Um, so he was in charge Hell of Hell hath no fury like a white man scorned. Mm-hmm. Possibly as punishment, he gets put in charge of the, at that time, dying narcotics department. So it, the prohibition ends in 1933. There is no budget for the narcotics department. It is also a laughing stock because no one considers narcotics a problem yet. But he has a plan. He decides to racialize drugs. And he is responsible for so much that happens after this. Um, but my question is, what drug does he start with? Heroin. Oh, interesting. You said heroin. So heroin yeah, yeah, bizarrely, that was kind of the drug of the day. And certainly on that scene, a lot of musicians were using heroin, smoking, I believe. Yeah, there was. Any other guesses for Do other you, drugs? It depends what he kind of like, did he start sort of like quite like low down so did he start with like weed or something and then work his okay. way up but i don't know a man with a man who's kind of scorned and has been put in charge of something that's failing part of me thinks he's going to go big yeah. or go home because he has to prove himself because okay. he's you know yeah i was wondering the same thing hannah because i'm like if you go after anyone who's smoking weed then as we know in america it's a gateway drug um, so maybe wow. he'll like find unless you live in Los Angeles and then it's just available in all good pharmacies I can't believe I, I left America I, at the worst time <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think about the drugs that were big then because acid didn't really come through until like the late until the 60s no no yeah. really it was like opium Mm-hmm. Heroin. I don't know if coke, cocaine would have been a thing then. I don't think crack was a thing then. Meth. There, there is some cocaine, but Hannah is correct with me. <laughs> I dropped my pen. 
I just stole my moment, stole my big moment by throwing your pen on the floor. <laughs> Hannah is <Sorry>. retracted. <laughs> I know it's redacted, but I say retracted. So it was weed. But yeah. So it's cannabis, even though this guy has previously gone on the record to say there's nothing wrong with cannabis. And if anything, it's a pointless distraction from the drugs that he really wants. What an absolute like. square. <laughs> Uh-huh. Drunk women solving crime. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. He turns on this position. Now, he starts calling it marijuana to make it sound Mexican so that he can give it a racial profile. Wow. Um, so he's trying to convince white America that, like, black people and, like, Is he why that is such a commonplace term for it? Like, yeah. holy shit. He tried to make it sound like this racial import that was going to destroy... Oh, my God whatever wow. he thought white America was. I always remember my friends, um, they were what, teenagers in London, like, what, 15 years ago or something. And, like, some, like, coppers came up to them thinking that they were smoking. And they sort of said to them, they said, have you got Narbis? And they were like, what? <laughs> and they were like, Narbis, I can smell Narbis. And they were like, I've, no one's ever called cannabis Narbis. Like, that's like, I mean, at least I didn't, I've never heard that. That what thing. does that mean? Maybe well, that just like cannabis, like so they called it narbis. Oh, narbis, like, narbis, yeah. And I imagine maybe some people <laughs> called it that, but it was funny. Like all the teenagers were like, "Oh, mate, no, you've you've someone's having you on there." But maybe yeah. people do call it narbis. But... No, we don't, and you're a loser. <laughs> I just had a quick look, right? So I just wanted to check this. You know, when you mm. talk about how they tried to racialize drugs, so what they they tried to do is yeah. attribute marijuana or weed to Mexican immigrants who would openly smoke it and in eastern states it was a fear of African Americans and jazz musicians um, they, that's what they tried to hype it up as which is where Billie Holiday kind of comes into it as a jazz musician yeah. who used yeah. cannabis to uh, quote take advantage of white women yeah, he does this whole scare story like he's properly playing into every single tension that existed at this time and making it. Meanwhile, anyone threat. who's been hit on anyone who's stoned, like that is no threat. I will take that <laughs> over a drunk dude <laughs> any day. fucking yeah. day. Anybody like, give me a break. Yes, you're totally right. I've never, ever had anything other than an empty fridge after an evening with a stoned person yeah. as opposed yeah. to. Like, hey, baby, do you want to chat? No, not really. OK, cool. If you actually look at the guy's track record, you know, he was a joke. He was a drunk. He was a joke. He was absolutely and he and his superiors. He's racist. He yeah, honestly, he gets called out and he's like, no, no, it'll be fine. 
So he's trying to convince white America that black America is dangerous, as Kate has said. He famously hated jazz, as Kate has also said. Like, there's loads of internal memos of him slagging it off. How sad is white America that you can scare us with jazz? <laughs> like, can we just... Like, he thought it was... Pause. He thought it was musical anarchy. He tells his agents to start arresting jazz musicians for using cannabis. And he, there's a quote of him saying, we will have a great national roundup of arrest of such persons on a single day. And he reassured congressmen, because everyone's like, what the fuck are you doing now? He said to the congressmen that this crackdown would not affect the good musicians, just the jazz musicians. So he's like literally telling everyone how racist he is every second. Um, wow. Now, this plan to arrest every jazz musician doesn't work out as he wanted. My question is why? Because he's an asshole. I love it. I love it. The jazz scene mm -hmm. was quite progressive was it not? So actually, you, you're talking about a diverse group of people. So mm -hmm. if you're targeting a group and trying to racially profile them, but actually it's all races getting along. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's what that backfired. Like if you're going to arrest the African-Americans, got to take the white guys, right? Well, see, this, this is one of the things that he hated about jazz. He hated that it was lots of different people coming together. Were you being literal when you said that it was like on one day they were going to do a big crackdown? Or do you know what I'm not? It's sure only because the thing was... is, it's like my only thought was that it could be that actually people got wind of this and were like, well, okay, we're just not gonna sort of if we know when these people are gonna try mm. try and come and bust us, then that's the night that we don't smoke there or we. Mm. I think he was quite prolific with in terms of like getting his men. Tell me if I'm wrong, Kay, to kind of just go to all of the cabaret and music bars and clubs where they would be playing. So, you know, it wasn't like they had to go and seek them out. There were billboards. Oh, yeah, no, and he he did, and he had men everywhere. Mm -hmm. So you guys have all kind of touched on this. The reason this plan didn't work was the solidarity of the jazz world. Mm. Um, mm. So his men could find no one that was willing to snitch, and whenever somebody was busted, everybody else chipped in to bail that person out. So in the end, the Treasury Department told Anslinger that he was wasting his time taking on a community that couldn't be fractured. So his bosses are telling him to stop. And he's like, no, I'm not done being racist yet. I've got another idea. So what he does instead is he scaled down his focus until it settled like a laser on the single target of Billie Holiday. Now, there is a reason uh, as well that he particularly targeted Billie Holiday. And Kate has mentioned it. So I don't know whether you guys want to guess or if actually... Are you just um, going to test whether or not we've been listening to Kate? What, okay. did say what was the reason that he particularly hated Billie Holiday? And it has come up, kind Is of. Is it just that she was at the peak of her career? I mean, he definitely hated black joy and success, for sure. But there's she, another reason as well. Didn't you say she, she would stand up for herself? She was not a pushover. Like, she would... That is a Get huge part of it, but there is yeah. also something else. It's the strange fruits. Yes, it oh, is the strange oh, fruits. My song. God, yes, it is a song about mm. lynchings. So this song, oh my God, um, it's called Strange Fruit, and it it's a very powerful, harrowing, and poignant song. And it's quite different to her other songs about being unlucky in love. And it's uh, what she would do when she sang it too is she would in the clubs, the bars would be closed, there'd be no table service, there'd be silence, everything would go dark, there'd be a single light just on her. 
And she would sing this song and then it would go pitch black. When the lights came back on, she had left the stage. So it was this really, really powerful piece. This song is a big deal because it is speaking truth to power. And it's kind of like this rallying point to fight anti-black racism. And it's raising awareness to white people who had been turning a blind eye. Billie Holiday is challenging white supremacy. And Harry Anslinger wants her to stop singing this song. It's almost like drugs or like a smokescreen for the real problem, which is racism. Which totally doesn't happen today anymore, and I'm really yeah. relieved that we've like sorted this out, especially in America. Isn't so it great? It in there. She had kind of outsmarted <laughs> him, didn't she? Because she was she was an incredible artist, and she used her artistry as a call to arms. Which yeah. is, I will I would engage people that wouldn't otherwise listen to me because. Her talent was so undeniable. Yeah. And then I will dazzle them with the, with the theatre of my mm, performance, yeah. which leaves you thinking. So actually, she literally called the birds down from the trees almost to, to, to join her in her education of yeah. white people, which, as we know, continues to this day. And yeah. she started to win favor from communities that were were considered by him to be his people white people and she started Mm -hmm. to really challenge him so the only thing he had on her was the fact that despite all of her brilliance she was either a drug well she had been a drug addict i don't know if she was an addict at that time but it was common knowledge that she was um yeah, a regular user. It it was come. I mean, and she was, you know, she was self medicating for all this unaddressed trauma of her childhood. And I know. In these cases, I'm always like, how did it take that long? Mm-hmm. Like, how did you have a stint where you were functioning? You know, it's, amazing. It's incredible what she's dealt with. I won't say the lyrics now because with my repressed English accent, it will not do it any kind of justice. But there, there is actually only one video. <laughs> There is only one video recording of her singing this song. There's no American recordings. This one video recording of her, it was in, she did a TV show in London like three months before she died. And that's the, there's obviously, there's there's lots of audio, but there's only one video recording of her singing it. And you can find it on YouTube if you want to see it. And it's amazing. Oh, wow. Um, So go and look that up. Didn't he get her sent to prison? Yes, there is. There's so much to this story. He got her sent to prison, and then when she came out, she was she wasn't able to perform in any venues that sold alcohol, which was basically where she made a living. So he continued to hamper her. Oh, he went after her big time. Also, and Kate has touched on this, her gigs are increasingly integrated. So she plays Carnegie Hall and stuff, and they would have like black people in the balconies and white people in the stalls. And she starts, you know, she's saying like, let let everybody sit together. Let's make it integrated. So she's like completely this guy's worst nightmare. Like she she, would have people mix in the venue. Yeah. She was like, I want it integrated because also she had power. She was making a lot Mm -hmm. of money for a lot of people. So if she said, I want it to be integrated, they kind of had to be yeah. like, well, that's what she wants. She's truly magnificent with her hands tied behind her back in terms of her upbringing and the abuse mm-hmm. that just followed her through life. And there's a brilliant book. Yeah. If, you're, you know, if you are interested in this as an area um, of social history, of, of a brilliant autobiography that I recommend. It's my favourite autobiography of all time. It's called Q by Quincy Jones. And oh, yeah. Quincy Jones, we all know as, you know, the producer of The Colour Purple and the producer for Michael Jackson. But actually, Quincy Jones was raised with as an army father and a mother who had mental health issues 
very difficult childhood, uh, very musical. Grew up in an, in a town where the, there were two other black kids of great musical talent that were in the neighbourhood. One of them was blind and they'd go and hang out at his house all the time because he was given an apartment because he was blind. And that was Ray Charles and the other guy was Count Basie. Oh, God. And they, they formed um, a big band and they toured Europe during World War II and just around this time, 1947, as an all-black big band, going in and out of venues where there was no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And so running parallel to this story is that story, and it's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. That is really fascinating. They enabled huge change alongside Billie Holiday, which then led to, you know, the birth of Motown and that crossover from black music to white audiences. I mean, it's only my opinion, but I don't know that one could have happened without the other. That's really interesting. Mm. It is always um, so interesting, isn't it? We've asked the stories that we cover sometimes. It's always interesting when sometimes certain criminals or something will turn up in other yeah. stories from, a, yeah. from another time. Like one of the guys that I did a story on the other day, he was in jail at the same time as Machine Gun mm. Kelly. And it just really gives you that, yeah, that context of the time. Of like, and, yeah, the social history that's happening in tandem. Yeah, um, at some point, maybe we should put all our episodes in sort of like order of when they happen like in a, history. Like a timeline. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's actually quite interesting to see mm, what yeah. happens across time. Um, in terms Amanda, of can you get on that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she refuses to stop singing the song. She's in court. It's 1947. They found the drugs on her. She'd been told that she'd probably just have to go to hospital and she could get well, but they actually send her to prison. So she goes through withdrawal and everything, Mm. all by herself in this prison. But she gets released early on March 16th, 1948, because of good behaviour. So she comes out of prison clean from drugs. But as Kate has said, this drug possession cost her her um, New York City cabaret card which means that she can't perform in clubs that have a liquor license. Mm -hmm. So she can do Carnegie Hall or she can do far away gigs, like she can do Mm. San Francisco, but she can't play the Harlem jazz clubs because you Mm. need a liquor, you need this liquor license. This is like, it's like Tanya Harding, but it matters. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a restraint of trade, isn't it? And then arguably she's done her time for whatever crime they managed to get her on. Yeah. You know, if she was caught in possession of illegal drugs, then that is the law. You know, the law says you've broken the law, therefore you you have to, you know, do the time if you've done the crime. Yeah. Uh, but she did. And I don't know, that is there, is there any example of anybody else who was imprisoned, who was maybe white and on oh drugs? My, oh, my God. Yeah. Do you know what one of my notes in this case is like literally Judy Garland, he treats white people so differently to how this, he treats black people. Judy mm. Garland gets turned over to him. She's on heroin because the studios put her on heroin. And he just has like a nice chat with her, tells her to like have bigger breaks between films and doesn't charge her, says it doesn't need to be a legal situation. So this guy is a fucking cunt. There's no, there's no two ways about it. He treats white people (laughs) so differently. Also, is there like, so that was a thing that whereby if you were a musician or a performer, that if you'd been to jail, you then couldn't. Like, was that for everyone that had one of the cards? Well, again, it's definitely a one rule for one Mm. and one rule for another. And she tried to get it back. And in theory, she should have been able to get it back. You apply to get it back and then you get it back. He put the stoppers on so she couldn't get it back. Because anything when someone leaves jail and and it's to prevent them sort of carrying on with their life and getting a job. And like, there's no sort of restorative justice. There's nothing. It's just... 
go out there and let's no, make absolutely. it even harder than it was before. And that's what he mm. wants to do, obviously. So she can still, so she's touring all around San Francisco, anywhere outside the New York jurisdiction, but that's really hard going, like, because she's just constantly touring. So it's tiring, she's getting ill again. They touched on this in the film. Did she, does like, she start using so much... again? Yes and no. Like, yeah. Like there's a there's a point where they arrest her again and she actually is clean and they plant drugs on her. Um, and then there's a point where she wow. definitely is using again. They send this guy... God. So Harry Anslinger is like super racist, but he has to start employing black agents to go to Harlem because white people are not trusted. So this one guy, Jimmy Fletcher, he like is one of the people that initially gives evidence on her, but he then falls in love with her. And then it's just like all of this stuff. And then he, you know, there's a whole thing there. She's supposed to be in this film with Louis Armstrong. Well, she is in a film with Louis Armstrong in 1946 called New Orleans. But Mm. like McCarthyism basically ruins this film. And the writers got told to rewrite it because it made it look like black people invented jazz. So basically her and Louis Armstrong get edited out of the film. And then the writers get arrested anyway because they're on the 10 Hollywood list. I've heard this. So much happened. Like, can you imagine Mm. getting that writing note that says, I'm sorry, this is too accurate. Can you yeah. rewrite it? We're going to take this from you as well, your claim on musical brilliance. Yeah, I mean, she, yeah. she died very young in the end, Billie Holiday, and she went on to achieve huge critical acclaim, but really posthumously, actually. It was really only after... It, what, lo- loads of it was after she died. I mean, she was so beloved at the time. She has loads of relationships with violent men. There's this one guy that started as her pimp, and then he was her manager, and he stole loads of money mm. for her. I think he was one of her husbands. There are stories about her turning up at gigs so badly beaten by this one, I think, Louis. Louis McKay that her friends would literally tape up her ribs and push her on stage and I think they covered that a bit in the film and she was scared to go to the police obviously because they're going to arrest her for drugs but then um, she eventually cuts him off but then he collaborates with the bureau and then he's one of the reasons that she gets set up so then there's this whole fake trial where they absolutely completely planted drugs on her um, and it's so weird because it's like they found the drugs in the bin and like why would they be in the bin that's why people who have she never actually, done drugs do we'll put them in the bin because <laughs> yeah. dude like and the, the police don't log half the evidence it's just so but basically mm-hmm. this jury doesn't fall for it and she gets it innocent on this trial there's this other guy that works for the bureau who gets described as a white obese guy and he He's also a sadist because there's there's literally stuff. There's like he the personality test given to all applicants to the Bureau of Anslinger's, he always makes them do this personality test. And this guy comes up a sadist on the personality test. He rises through the ranks. And he's got so right. much previous of like planting drugs on women and drugging women. Also the um, fact that you he, do like a, a personality test for the police and there's a box for like sadists. Like you can literally... Yeah. fail a personality test for the police so like badly. NGI1. Yeah, great, you've got no empathy, perfect. So anyway, she's proved innocent in this court case, but the, it's taken its toll. She's like really, like, it's been really bad for her. She's back on drugs and she gets, she's seriously ill and she gets diagnosed. She's got psoriasis of the liver. She's got various other ailments. Mm. She gets hospitalised. She's emaciated. She comes back from London and then she is emaciated when she gets to this hospital. But she gets put on methadone to help her and she's gaining weight and she's coming back to health. And she is quoted as saying while lying in this hospital bed, you watch, baby, they are going to arrest me in this damn bed. Question, do the 
bureau come and arrest her from the hospital Sounds bed. like it. Yeah, I keep doing leading questions. Well, of course they're going to because we've established that there's a sadist and a racist with not a human yes. heartbeat to share between them leading. Yes. Them. Yeah, the clues are there, it's true. She's emaciated in a hospital bed on methadone. They handcuff her to the bed. They plant drugs in the room in a place where she couldn't possibly reach. They stop the methadone. And they say that she has to tell them who her drug dealer is and they won't let her friends in to see her and they fingerprint her and they mugshot her and everything in this bed. Now, one of her friends, Maylee Duffy, screamed at them that it was against the law to arrest somebody who was on the critical list. So they took her off the critical list and there is a crowd of protesters outside. There is this pastor um, who wanted to help her. He's got this drug clinic. Loads of people, like, everyone loves her and everyone's very upset. But she died in that bed on July 17th, 1959, aged 44. Mm. She was only 44. 44. So young. And she said that she didn't blame Anslinger's agents as individuals. She blamed the drug war itself because it forced the police to treat ill people like criminals. She's quoted as saying, imagine if the government chased sick people with diabetes, put a tax on insulin and drove it to the black market, told doctors they couldn't treat them, uh, she wrote in her memoir, and then sent them to jail. If we did that, everyone would know we were crazy. Yet we do practically the same thing every day in the week to sick people hooked on drugs. Although I feel like the Tories just submitted submitted that as a proposal. (laughs) Yeah, that's coming. And as discussed, there's an amazing film about this too. Wow. Like like you guys, I, I always assumed she was this amazing legend that just everyone respected and she had a great time. Like, I didn't know a lot of this stuff until learning more about it. So let's raise a glass to Billie Holiday. Drunk women solving crime. Okay, so I have a listener crime from Mary Stokes from Patron. And she says, hello, Drunk Women Solving Crime. She says, I was re-listening to some old episodes. Nice. Argentine bank... Because she listens to us more than once. You know. Uh, the Argentine... It's worth, it's worth a repeat listen. Everyone should yeah. do that. She says, The Argentine bank heist reminded me of a baffling crime that happened to me when I was living in Buenos Aires. Sadly, not the only time I was a victim, but definitely the most sneaky. Basically, I was sat in a bar with two friends and we were having drinks after work. We were sat as a three around a small table facing each other. I had put my gym bag and my handbag on the floor right by my feet. Yes, I know, but I was still in my first year in the city at that point. The bar was quite empty being a weekday. There wasn't anyone close by our table or walking through the bar. We finish our drinks and go to leave. And it's at that moment that I notice that my rucksack with my gym stuff is missing. And in its place is a different black rucksack. I look again under the table, but it's clear that someone has nicked it. Mm. Annoying since I would have to replace my gym and swimming kit, but not too tragic. Thankfully, they were not the brightest thieves and had not gone for my handbag, which at the time contained my passport and a whole wad of cash as I had to pay my rent the following day. To this day, I'm still baffled by the whole thing. Who was it and when did they make off with my trainers and why leave another completely different bag in its place? And how daft must you be to think a girl's rucksack would hold more treasures than her handbag? Any light you might be able to shine on the situation would be most appreciated. Absolutely love your podcast and the lock-in debriefs. Thanks for being such a source of joy during this unsettling time. We don't know what was in the replacement bag, do we? Yeah, that's a weird addition. I mean, you assume it's just empty, but in my fantasy head, it's her whole new identity. She's got a new passport. She has directions of where to go. Do you know what I mean? It's like, no, we're not stealing from you. We're giving you a new We have that like in our... um, (laughs) In our flat, we have like a little old cigar box that we keep like our um, 
passports and stuff like that in, and we call it the Jason Bourne box because we are like, really sexing up our like or any sort of currency we've got from countries that we didn't spend. How about how about this time? I'm Toby. <laughs> yeah, but um, but the thing that strikes me about this story is like again, it's like get more women in the workforce because if women had been in this gang of thieves, then they would have known they to take the, the handbag, handbag, right? Yeah, so yeah. diversify, guys. I mean, I know it's not definitely men but it's definitely men if they didn't take a woman's handbag and took unless they yeah. like smelly socks and smelly shorts maybe could be a thing hashtag employment yes women. exactly <laughs> it goes for continuing gangs as well grime rings need women too um did you say it was in buenos aires yes yep. it's in buenos aires i mean this could have been i don't know in my fantasy head oh yeah a drugs drop he thinks he's Ooh. picking up drugs okay he's got gym kit idiot the end. Oh yeah, but the, the, the sort of the leaving the bag yeah. thing suggests oh. maybe. So yeah, because we don't we we kind of need her to have opened this bag and to tell us what's in it because also like this could be a bag mm. full of drugs or a bag full of money and they think that her mm. bag was a bag full of drugs or a bag for money yeah. and it was a swap and then they're cutting open the linings in a darkened alley, rain pouring down on them, looking for the non-existent drugs. <laughs> yeah. All they've got is radar. Yes, the floors in Argentina like all of Indiana Jones and like it can feel the weight, so you've got to displace if you steal something you gotta replace it yeah. Maybe it's that. i've never been well, to argentina okay that that would be a, an, an intro like like we've had cameras let's, let's do wait, wait. Let's, see how that, let's do a deterrent that way for crime there was a heavier bag here there was definitely a heavier bag. do you know what i do think there's something That's... slightly suspicious like uh, it was mary wasn't it and mary is one of our um patrons yeah, mary patron. big fat big fan of you but part of me thinks that maybe she hasn't told us what was in the bag because it was just like Ooh. yeah it was loads of money and she's like I'm not telling them that like, <laughs> she wrote in to cover her tracks like what stupid people gave me a million dollars that i went on to and invest may- maybe in her name isn't yeah. even it's not mary stokes this is a, a different this is just pr to like throw dun, that dun, gang off the dun. scent <laughs> or it could have been the confusion of a perimenopausal woman who couldn't remember where she'd put a bag because that's me right now <laughs> we like to come full circle and i feel like we just did it that was great. <laughs> we came back okay. to perimenopause, which is what it's all about. Okay. We did it. We Yay. saw it. Yeah. That helped, Mary. Sorry yeah. I called you up. Thanks, Mary. We, we love you. <laughs> we have just enough time to ask our fantastic guest, Kate Thornton, what are you up to? Come and listen to the podcast. Over 200 episodes now of wow. uh, brilliant guests like your good selves. Uh, wading through th- three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. It's my favourite job in the world ever. Yay! <laughs> it's awesome. And it's such a good podcast. Like, I've listened to loads of it and, like, it's just brilliant. Yeah, it's great. It's really, really good. Before I dialed in with you today, I was just um, going through the edit of... Uh, we have Alistair Campbell uh, and his daughter, Ooh. Grace, on. That was a really interesting episode. Very interesting dynamic. I love it. Wow. You know, you know, You never know who's going to be next and then next week we've got Vernon Kay and then the week after Joss Stone very you know it's lovely nice wow yeah, you have a very diverse guests yeah it's nice. like you've got like all saints you've got comedians you've got everybody yeah that's everybody comedians and all saints <laughs> the end um yeah no it's, I love it and listen you know it's been a joy in lockdown it's saved my sanity having 
a show to make that, ah. and then chatting to people online who, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, there's there's a woman who just messaged me the other day and she's relocated to a different country. She's wow. in a job on her own. She's trying to make friends. She was going there to start this new life and then lockdown happens. She's now taking work in <gasps> a warehouse yeah. and her only comfort is podcasts. And she's yeah. literally plugged in all day. And yeah. and she she messaged me going, I've run out of episodes. Like, I've caught up. <laughs> now what? And I was like, I almost gave her my number to say, just, just call me, it's fine. <laughs> it's the best oh. and yet the most guilt-inducing compliment like i'm through all the episodes you're like i'm, I'm trying to make more i'll make more a week i mean i do the, the show 52 weeks a year so it's a show a week and i really yeah. research my guests as hopefully yeah. you realize when you came on you know well britain's funniest oh woman my god yes <laughs> yeah. yeah so um, much research you know we've had a lot of people asking can you do two shows a week I just don't know that I I could and do all the other stuff that I do as well um, yeah. but if I if I if I had yeah. the time I'd do that and nothing else all day every day I love it yes also you have the same problem as us of like if we did this more regularly then our livers would not forgive us like <laughs> you know, that's the other part of like I'd love to do it twice a week, but I'm just like, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, you know, I've, certainly in lockdown, I've become like this living contradiction. In the morning, I get up and I work out five days a week and I drink smoothies and I'm super good. And then the moment five wow. o'clock comes, I just turn into, you know, wine lady. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. That is my though. kind of superhero, wine lady. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get some T-shirts done as merch that just say, why not? Nice. It's hey. a good question. <laughs> um, obviously, that's just a work in progress. I might give it some more thought. Um, <laughs> <laughs> why not? When you spend a year on your own with a 12-year-old, even you sound funny. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me, girls. Oh, now I've, now I've solved crimes with you. Like, you don't do repeat guests. I feel a bit sad. I was really looking forward to this. And, and our case, thank you. I loved so much the Billie Holiday case because it deserves discussion as well. It's really it's a really important piece of social history. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Kate oh, Gordon. Okay. Thank you. Drunk Women Solving Crime is produced by Amanda Redman. Music by The Lion and the Wolf. If you would like to, you can follow us on Drunk Women Pod on Twitter. On Facebook and Insta, we are Drunk Women Solving Crime. And please review us on Apple Podcasts. And also, if you have a crime that you would like us to solve, write it on a review on Apple Podcasts as well. Thank you to ACAS and thank you for listening. Bye! Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 